Welcome to this allcreation.org podcast focused on eco-theology. This is Nevia Estudillo. I am a Venezuelan eco-theologian and pastor uh, in the Presbyterian Church USA. It is a pleasure to share with you about this topic, which has been part of my life in the last 30 years. So important for all of us to today as members of the Judeo-Christian tradition who want to find resources within our faith to work for environmental and climate justice. So what is eco-theology? In a way, I could say that eco-theology is theology itself. For those of us who believe in a creator God, doing theology should always lead us to consider the whole of creation in our theological reflection. If we say that God is creator, how we treat each other and the rest of creation must have a place within the theological endeavor. And of course, ecotheology represents all the work that is being done today to unite the ecological issues, environmental and climate crisis with theology, the people of God and the ministry of the church. So first, some very basic comments here. What about ecotheology? What is eco? Eco comes from the Greek word oikos, which means house. In theology, I like the definition of an eco-theologian from Bolivia, Alcira Greda, who once said that theology is to dare to suspect, to intuit and investigate where life is going or where God is moving. Eco-theology is not environmentalism because it also takes into account human beings. And it's not human rights because it also takes into account the rest of nature. What is particular about eco-theology is that in addition to being concerned with the human experience and relationship to God, it is also concerned with the relationship of human beings to the rest of nature and the consequences of these relationships. For, the reason, for this uh, reason, I, the best definition that I've heard once about eco-theology is that Ecotheology is the critique and reconstruction of the relationship between God, human beings, ecosystems, and the universe, unquote. I did not write who I heard to say this saying, but I love this definition. Ecotheology then asks itself, if God is creator, what is God's will for creation? If God is creator, how should we relate to creation? If God is creator, how does God exist in relationship with everything that is created, all living beings? If God is a creator, who am I? And what is my place in creation? If God is a creator, what would God say about pollution, climate change, loss of biodiversity, deforestation, hunger, violence? Ecotheology seeks answers to these questions in dialogue with scripture, cultures, and epistemology, which is the study of how we have learned to know and how this knowledge is also connected to practices, which in turn have consequences on the very life of the planet. Ecotheology also seeks answers in dialogue with sciences, sociology, biology, history, and ecotheology dialogues with other spiritualities, other religions, and seeks wisdom also in nature. 
Today, for the purposes of this program, we approach ecotheology seeking solutions to the environmental crisis and the climate crisis in particular. And I will point out how um, ecotheology then enters into dialogue with different, these different traditions and different resources that we have. So in regards to if, how ecotheology enters into dialogue with science and biology, um, to kind of give us a broad introduction of the, the problem that we have before us. Uh, one of the things that we hear related to biodiversity, and especially the, according to the World Wildlife Fund, in regards to monitor populations of animals and plants who have been monitored since the 1970s, you know, we hear of an increased rate in, of extinction and disappearance of populations of animals by 100 to 1,000 percent times of what was considered normal. Uh, since 1917, monitor species populations have declined by more than 60%. In North America, we're talking about 3 billion birds lost over the last 50 years. Europe and Central Asia, only 23% of species and 16% of their habitats are in good health. In Latin America, we talk about 94% loss since 1975. In India, 12% of wild animal species live at risk of extinction. These numbers are heartbreaking and difficult to comprehend. So when we ask science to help us understand this rate of extinction on the planet that has experienced extinction at other times before, we see that the main driver of the present loss of biodiversity is mankind. Is humanity. It's due to loss of habitat. Is the land use change for food production? The arrival of invasive species that just like in our own bodies arrive taking advantage of a sick body. Over exploitation of certain species. And market driven consumption patterns. Pollution and climate change. And just as it's happening with this accelerated loss of biodiversity, climate scientists also tell us, 99% of them, that climate change is also increasing, it's already happening, it's caused by human activity, the gases that we emanate as we move, as we generate energy, transport ourselves and, to, and harvest our food, each and every one emanates greenhouse gases. Um, that have the ability to retain heat. And so the atmosphere, this little beautiful layer that surrounds the earth, which has made life possible since time immemorial, right? Which uh, has made, uh, created a friendly environment for us as humanity to, to grow and, and live. This layer, we're making it every time thicker and thicker, provoking changes in the climate, uh, which destabilizes the whole planet provoking droughts on one side, abundant rains on the other, extreme heat on one side, extreme cold on the other. This is to put it all in very simple ways. Another one of the challenges that we have today is that the carbon dioxide that we emit in our, uh, in our many ways of lifestyles um, 
remain active in the atmosphere between 300 to 1,000 years. Even if today we stop all carbon emissions, the next generations will have to deal with what we have done this far. So when we hear all of this, we hear issues of faith, spiritual, moral values. We hear the need for justice, as well as the need for new technologies that we not yet have. We need uh, the need of science and political will to come forth. The issue of justice is very important to point out because when we're talking about climate change, uh, the reality is that the communities of the planet who are less responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions causing climate change as we know it today are the ones who did not, um, are the ones who are suffering the most already because of their vulnerability um, even before this crisis arrived. Um, in the US, we can think of outdoor workers, farm workers, worldwide is mostly women, people exposed to droughts, rains, increasing heat. In the US, where I live, extreme heat causes more deaths annually than the sum of hurricanes, lightning, tornadoes, floods, and earthquakes based on the Clio Institute. So the climate crisis uh, is affected by so many aspects of our lifestyles that we can easily then see the need for transformation. And this leads us into the conversation of the climate crisis being also a spiritual crisis, a crisis of value, a human crisis. It calls for a transformation in the way that we live, the way that we value our lives. Governments have to play a part. Fossil fuel industry, the main polluter of the planet, another part. The banks that finance them, another part. And also institutions. And that's where the church also plays a part. And to that end, that's where ecotheology can assist us. <laughs> so in this podcast, I want to point out to the tools that we have in the Judeo-Christian tradition to help um, uh, the church unite uh, in the mission to stop the destruction of biodiversity and the climate crisis. And I speak still about stopping because climate scientists tell us that if we take drastic measures before 2030, we still have time to avoid the worst impacts of climate change and having to live in a hostile climate uh, environment where humanity as species has never lived. And to that end, this is now when ecotheology needs to dialogue and enter into a dialogue with the history of the church and with scripture. To that end, I want to uh, uh, bring us um, to the story of Joseph and the Pharaoh's dreams in Genesis 39, 41. If people don't know this story, I would recommend reading it um, before you can continue um, hearing my, my story. Again, this is a theology. Uh, reading scriptures again through the lenses and a concern from the climate crisis. So remember the passage of Joseph and the dreams of the Pharaoh of Egypt? Well, Genesis doesn't speak of a climate crisis 
like the one that we face today. It certainly describes the reality of a region that will face climatic changes, which after seven years of abundance will also be followed by seven years of famine. In this story, there is no mention of human sin as the cause of the environmental changes, why God does nothing to stop it. That's not the point of the story. But it is the fact that if people don't get organized to adapt to what's coming, everybody's going to suffer. Both the rulers, the common people, the poor, the animals of the field as well. Just like the dreams of the pharaoh, an ancient and still present source of divine revelation, which in the history is Joseph, a man of faith who helps to interpret it for the good of the people. Today, climate scientists are also warning us of the threat of climate change and its impacts on the most vulnerable communities, on governments and all the other creatures with whom we share this plan. Instead of seven years of abundance before the crisis, for the last five years, scientists have been warning us that we have eight years left to stop the irreversible threat of climate change. If we do not listen, the next generations will live in a hostile planet. As I said before, a planet that humanity has never experienced yet as a species. So once again, while scientists have the vision of the future, it is the people of faith who have the gift of interpreting what this apocalyptic revelation means for God's people or for all people. Scientists speak to us from reason, facts, and figures, but faith is an expert in interpreting these data from values, from the call to love our neighbor and care for the hopeless, the helpless, from the need to change minds and hearts, from the call to care for nature as God's creation, from repentance, forgiveness. Science gives us data, but faith can ignite enthusiasm and commitment. And also, as ecotheologian Evelyn Tucker said in a recent conference, we, people of faith, know the values of beauty, wonder, human complexity, humility, and the sacred. These values guide us. They move us. They mobilize us. Today, more than ever, to stop the environmental and the climate crisis, the world needs communities of faith in our most precious values, ancient values, that speak of care for the earth, stewardship, eco-justice, and eco-spirituality. In the Genesis story, we see the receptivity of the people to an unprecedented revelation. They do not engage in disclaiming it, whether it's God's will or not God's will, whether it's the end of the world or not the end of the world, or why God cannot prevent it. They organize themselves without delay to lessen the impact of the crisis on all people, without discrimination. In the story of Genesis, we see a God who inspires the people to prepare the way so that people and creatures do not suffer unnecessarily. The time of famine comes, as foretold, but the welfare of all is preserved. Thanks to a faithful God, a God who provides the vision, 
the wisdom, the gifts, and prepares hearts. And so also, thanks to a community effort of rulers and workers and farmers and leaders of diverse religions, everyone, women and men, do their part to avoid a major crisis. Yes, perhaps some because they were afraid of the pharaoh, or the pharaoh because he was afraid of losing power. After all, no one can govern a needy people indefinitely. Perhaps maybe others because they had no option and wanted to survive. And maybe just a few because they followed because of their faith. But the fact is that each one did their part. And in doing so, justice reigned over the land. And the kindness of God is made manifest to those who had faith, even in the midst of a crisis. And just like this example, the reality is that when we go back to scripture from an environmental concern, we see that um, from the earliest passages of scripture, to the latest, we hear a call and a warning to the need to care for God's creation. And that when we do not respect this goal, the harmonious order under which God created life is affected and all creatures suffer the consequences. We see this clearly in scriptures and from there arises what we can describe as the presence of three eco-theologies related but not equal. Let's remember that the Bible is a collection of books and letters written at different times in the history of God's people. This diversity is a gift that can be an opportunity to correct fundamentalist, dualistic, and alienating theologies, which have separated us from God, the creator, and the rest of nature. So let's look at these theologies, stewardship, eco-justice, eco-spirituality. For those who want to see um, and read and find this, uh, the theology of stewardship, I would recommend reading Genesis 1, Matthew 6, Luke 22, Psalm 8, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 24, and Deuteronomy 30, 19. Stewardship takes into account that we are created male and female in the image of God. With a certain special status compared to the rest of creation, yes. We were invited to be fruitful and multiply and make use of all that is on the earth. This special status, however, does not grant us privileges against others, but it is a call to service, just as Jesus himself did when he was among his disciples. The psalmist recognizes in men a certain status of privilege placing creation almost as a God. But in passing through the earth, there are certain rules that men must follow. The earth is given to us with certain instructions. One very important one is that the earth is God's and we are strangers. Our use of resources has a limit. It must be done in such a way that the most vulnerable communities also have what they need. Even when God seems to give us everything, we must choose good life. The use of resources in a way that ensures the well-being 
of the next generations. These are the characteristics of stewardship, uh, the ecotheology of stewardship, and it is very much present in evangelical churches, in efforts uh, of conservation of ecosystems, recycling, reforestation, reforestation, etc. Let's now look at ecojustice as a theology. To study it, and I recommend reading Genesis 9, 1 to 17, Genesis 24, 1 and 2, Isaiah 24, 4 to 6, Jeremiah 3, 2 to 5, Hosea 4, 1 to 6, Romans 8, 19 to 23, Mark 16, 15, and John 3, 16, and Revelation 11, 18. Ecojustice as a principle recognizes that we cannot achieve social justice without ecological justice. In scripture, ecojustice teaches us that even though we have a special status in nature, the covenant that God made with Noah also included the rest of the earth creatures. Even though we enjoy this special status, the earth and human beings belong to God. The capacity of dominion over the earth does not separate us from the earth. Our actions have consequences for nature as part of a created, interdependent, and interrelated whole. Our sin produces alterations in nature, not by God's will, but as a result of our actions. Therefore, it is not only humanity that suffers, the earth also suffers, the animals of the field and even the soil suffer. The experience of suffering is not only human, we share it with all living creatures. There is a certain divine will in that suffering, even though it is also the product of human sin. That is why we hear the promise uh, to free us from the slavery of sin uh, as something that is we share with all creation in Romans. Creation expects us to manifest ourselves as sons and daughters of God, doing our part, spreading the good news of Christ throughout creation, because the love and redemption that we receive in Christ also belongs to her. It is not exclusive to human beings. When we look at the promises of salvation in Scripture, Non-human creatures also appear in the religious imagery of the new heaven and the new earth. Our salvation goes hand in hand with the earth, just like our life goes hand in hand. Therefore, God's justice in the new Jerusalem includes the extermination of those who destroy the earth. She too awaits justice and liberation. Next, Lao, listen for the theology of eco-spirituality in scripture. And for, for it, I recommend reading Psalm 104, Proverbs 8, Job 12, 7, Genesis 2, 7, and 1 Kings 17, 2 to 16. Just to choose a few. Eco-spirituality recognizes the special role that human beings has on earth. But also every creature has a special role on the earth. Eco-spirituality places the human being in a horizontal situation with the rest of nature. 
recognizing the role that each creature has in protecting the regenerative power and capacity with which God created the earth. For eco-spirituality, human beings not only serve the earth, but are ministered by it. Moreover, we are earth. We are dust. We are soil. We are made of the earth. Eco-spirituality recognizes the presence of God as spirit, inspiring, renewing, giving life to all that exists. Nothing lives without being infused by the breath of God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is not only an experience of the church, but of all creation. Every creature, God gives life and gifts to fulfill God's will for God's creation. It is the presence of God's Spirit that makes, makes it possible for us to know God in the study of nature, just as much as the Holy Spirit helps us to interpret God's message in Scripture. The earth is filled with the glory and the wisdom of God from the beginning. Animals also have a role in teaching us, guiding us, supporting us, so that God's will can be done in our lives. God does not limit God's self to revealing God's self through men or women. God also makes God's self present and speaks to us through nature. Eco-spirituality recognizes us as part of the earth. The human history of salvation does not take place outside of it. In it and with it, we live, we feel, and we know God. So as we see, then we are not without a scriptural support to relate to God's creation, our home, our oikos, in a just and life-giving way. So if nature has been part of our faith, or Judeo Christian faith, so clearly, what happened? When did we lose sight of it? What has led us to forget it to the point of reaching a crisis like the one we are suffering today? To answer this question, um, we could point to several moments in human history, but for the purposes of this podcast, uh, I want to point out to one in particular that happened 500 years ago, but which continues to be active in our continent and the whole world, creating space for the development of capitalism, colonialism, racism, and many isms that are damaging and hurtful for life. And here then is when, again, ecotheology comes into dialogue with the history of the church. Elizabeth Johnson, in her book, Christianity and uh, Ecology, Seeking the Well-Being of the Earth and All and Human Beings, explains that during the first 1,500 years of the church history, nature was seen as a, as a good creation. The church was governed by a Trinitarian mysticism, God, humanity, and nature which even though was not perfect because he still existed within a dualistic and hierarchical world, this Trinitarian mysticism allowed it to see nature as a living being with rights and also as a place of knowing God. In other words, nature was a place where we could also um, not God, know God, which is not the same as saying that nature is God, but in it we know God's wisdom, 
who experience God's glory in love. Up to the point to the, those first 1,500 years of the church history, the role of the theologian included studying nature to understand the mysteries of God for the good of God's people, not just in scripture alone. If we left out any part of this Trinitarian mysticism, it was known that our knowledge of God, of nature, or ourselves would be incomplete. What happened then? When did we stop discerning the mysteries of the universe to seek our return to God and reach salvation without the support of nature? Elizabeth Johnson says that for the Catholic and also the Reformed Church, this began when their worldview was confronted and perhaps even delighted by the discoveries of the modernity and the new science. Until now, the church taught that the universe revolved around the earth. And from this view, anthropocentric and androcentric centered on men, male, the church organized itself and society in our homes, creating order and static hierarchies. But the new science discovered that this vision was man-made. It was not by biblical either. The world was not hierarchical uh, hierarchically ordered, nor did the universe revolve around it. The vision was just the fruit of a culture, not a theological, biblical, or scientific truth. This Trinitarian uh, mysticism also continued to fade with the rise of the Industrial Revolution and when modernity began to define human well-being with access to an accumulation of material goods. This culture married to the reformed theology concluded then that the more goods and money that people had or that you had, the more proof that you were being blessed by God. If you were poor, it must be because of your fault or God's will. If you choose to live in a simple, untied, material freeway, then you're lazy, and something must be wrong with you. We see this culture alive today in the theology of progress, in colonialist, developmentalist, and racist mentalities, and in the silence or lack of witness of the church in the face of the climate and the ecological crisis, which is a product of this mentality within totalitarianism of God's creation. When science moved, proved that the church was wrong in its teaching, that we were not the center of the universe, that we, uh, the church hierarchy did not know how to dialogue with the new scientific knowledge. To accept it would have been, would have created big changes in the way of being and acting. Changes in theology and the way of being with one another especially women. Unlike what we are doing today, you know, we're considering the environmental crisis and to see how it is calling us to reform the church, to rethink the way we pray, we worship, we read scripture, um, how we are God's people in the midst of a climate crisis, how we need to relate to one another in just ways. At a time of the Reformation, and speaking as a Protestant here myself, 
the reformers decided to abandon and even center their vocation to discern the universe for the good of God's people. And this is not just the Reformation, this is also the Catholic Church at the time, decided to, uh, to abandon its role to discern the universe for the good of God's people. And dedicated themselves then now only to seek God's revelation through scripture. Instead of taking the time to pray and to ask God for help, in the face of the new discoveries, the church threw nature overboard. And if, as if she was a problem, separating us from her, as if God was not also there. And since we left nature to science, modernity, the market, and to study, discern it, dissecting it, exploiting it, and using it for the good of the so-called human development. Since then, nature goes from being a subject, like in Deuteronomy 10.14, to being an object. From being a living being, as in Mark 4.39 or Psalm 104.29, to being an inanimate being, without soul or spirit. It went from having rights and being a theological place of knowing God, like in Job 12, 7, to being raw material, labor force, for the purpose of the market, the industrial revolution, and human development. In the face of all of this, what can we do then? Ecotheology tells us that today more than ever and ever to take care of the earth is also to take care of our faith in a creator God. And that the magnitude of the crisis points to the fact that we need to ignite a social movement as in the story of Joseph and the fairest dreams. To our, our vantage, the reality is that 84% of the people in the world, and we're talking about 6 billion people, confess to have some kind of faith. And here's where ecotheology or Christian ecotheology enters into dialogue with other spiritualities. And that allows us to see that all religions of the world have in their principles a call to care for the earth, for nature, and for the most vulnerable people. With all religions, we share a sense of the sacred. We there can join together to make changes from the institutional to the systemic, advocating together for ecological and climate justice. As world religions, we own land, schools, properties, hospitals, campgrounds. We have capital. As faith communities, we're already organized. We don't need to go out looking for people. The people already gathered. We can convene power. We have convening power. Our traditions create space for forgiveness, repentance, lamentation, transformation. We teach that our life does not belong to us. It belongs to God or something beyond ourselves. We believe in the value of solidarity, sacrifice, love. The world listens when communities of faith speak out. We still have some credibility. 
we are already in different communities, even in places where governments hasn't arrived. Faith communities um, keep us in the struggle, committed in good and bad. The environmental crisis summons us to use all these talents, which we have inherited for the good of all creation. As I hear in echoes from my own tradition, for God so loved the world that we might share the goodness with all creation. What can we do in our own midst and in our communities? We can create spaces for reflection and action. We can support the actions of youth, the actions of women. We can plant trees, community gardens, promote sustainable agriculture. We can dispose of food waste, create compost, recycling, installing solar panels, switching to energy-saving light bulbs, celebrating Earth Day and Environmental Environment Day, creation, a season of creation, and sharing what we do with others. Another way in which faith communities all around the world are engaging right now is in divestment. Divestment, divesting. Uh, we are talking almost $40 trillion in, from banks uh, that support fossil fuel industries. We're talking about 15, more than 1,500 institutions, including 500 faith groups around the world, who are in the process of divesting. And with the community, what can we do? We can collaborate, uh, supporting conservation efforts, networking, participating in campaigns, mobilizations, and political advocacy. As you have heard then, Christian eco-theology in dialogue with all sectors, including the history of our tradition, leaves us no choice but to join the environmental movement to do what we can do to heal the earth. Some people say that the earth can survive without us. Maybe she can. But if we were created from it, and God said that everything God made was very good, it must have been for a very good reason. I believe this is the moment. There is no other better way to live but saving our faith in a creator God along with nature.